1: Welcome to New Books on the Environment. I'm Noah Sokol. This month, we'll hear my interview with New Yorker staff writer Elizabeth Colbert about her new book called The Sixth Extinction An Unnatural History. In our last two podcasts, first, Ben Goldfarb spoke with author and biologist John Waldman about the decline of the great Atlantic fish migrations. Last month, Jason Schwartz spoke with John Muallam about his acclaimed book, Wild Ones, a book about the strange, touching, and sometimes absurd relationships that humans have developed with three particular species on the brink of extinction. This month we'll be looking again at the issue of species extinction and human influence, though this time at a much broader scale. In the sixth extinction, Elizabeth Colbert travels to diverse and remote ecosystems around the world to see evidence of the five major mass extinction events that have occurred on the Earth in the last 500 million years, The reason we know about them is because of the evidence left in the fossil record. She also visits sites to see evidence of the sixth mass extinction event, the event that we are now currently in and that we humans are causing. Just like the last five extinction events, we too will leave our imprint in the fossil record to be seen millions of years from now. The book also tells the fascinating story of how the scientific idea of mass extinction was developed and it describes findings that humans have actually been driving species extinct for tens of thousands of years. While the pace of extinction is no doubt greater now, the tendency to drive species extinct is one rooted deep in our history. As Colbert says, we've been at this project for a long time. I spoke with Elizabeth Colbert at her home in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for joining me. I'd like you to start by having you read one of the two quotes that you've chosen to open your book with. And that is a quote by the famed biologist and naturalist E.O. Wilson.
0: If there is a danger in the human trajectory, it is not so much in the survival of our own species as in the fulfillment of the ultimate irony of organic evolution, that in the instant of achieving self-understanding through the mind of man, life has doomed its most beautiful creations.
1: I like that quote because for me that it's not only about doom, but there's also something kind of profound and tragic um, about that doom. So why did you choose this quote to to sort of set the stage for your book?
0: Well, it, it sort of brings together a lot of themes, I think, that are in the book. Um, or maybe it sets, as you say, sort of sets the stage for a lot of themes that... Are, or further developed in the book, and that Ed Wilson has spent his whole life, you know, studying and writing about. It, it comes from his book uh, *The Diversity of Life*, which was published in the early '90s, I think. And uh, what I like about it is, as as you say, it has a kind of a twist on the on, on doom and gloom, which is that there's self knowledge, there's understanding, um, that understanding turns out to be very dangerous. Uh, He doesn't quite say that, but he he suggests that.
1: This book is about the five major mass extinction events um, that have occurred on the Earth since life began, as well as the sixth major extinction event, uh, which is the event that we are currently in and that we humans are causing. So I'd like to discuss these events in a bit more detail. But first, can you just briefly describe the concept of background extinction and why it's important to understand background extinction to appreciate a mass extinction event.
0: Sure, um, background extinction is empirically derived uh, rate. Of it. You would you would look at, under the best of all possible circumstances. You'd have you know a complete fossil record. It's usually done for a big group. You know, say uh, mammals or mollusks, and you would have all of the. You'd have a complete fossil record of all the species. Now, obviously, you don't have that, and you'd see what, how long a species, on average, lasted. Um, so, very roughly speaking, you know, species tend to hang around for, say, a million years. Um, but in some groups, they, they are lo- seem to be longer lived, and in some groups, they seem to be shorter lived. And so, you would comb through the fossil record, and you would, you would, you know, sort of divide the, you know, species by by the time they were around, and, and you'd get this rate of, of it, which species seemed to wink out. Um, now, we don't have a complete record, but people have tr- tried using very large fossil databases to, to come up with that rate, and and when they do that, uh, I, as I discuss in the, in the book, for example, for mammals, we get in the relatively recent geological past, we get the the Rate of you know roughly you should see a mammal go extinct on a background rate uh, maybe once every seven hundred years or so.
1: Now I'd like to contrast that with with a mass extinction event, and I'd just like to read a quote from the book that I, I really like by the paleontologist Michael Benton, who, who writes, "During a mass extinction event, vast swathes of the tree of life are cut short, as if attacked by crazed axe wielding madmen." So, talk a bit about. What a mass extinction event uh, is, and and even though we now know each extinction event was very different in character in terms of what caused it and, and the consequences are, which we'll talk about a bit later, maybe just what what unites them.
0: Well, a, ma- a mass extinction event is just defined. Um, it's a moment, and moment is being used. Loosely here, sort of a geological moment. So, a, a relatively when at t- a time when, in a relatively short amount of time, a relatively large proportion of the Earth's species, for whatever reason, uh, disappear. And there can be the five big. They're commonly kind of called the Big Five extinctions. Now, this is all since we only have a fossil record, really a detailed fossil record, you know, for the last half billion years or so. So. It's it's usually you know thought of as the last half billion years that we can really look at this, um, and there can somewhat oxymoronically also be minor mass extinctions. So there are moments when it seems you know a, a large but not as large proportion of the Earth's species uh, wink out.
1: There's an idea that you just touch on really briefly at the beginning of your book, but I, I found to be quite powerful. Um, which is one of the first scientific ideas that we're introducing our kids to is the idea of extinction. So, describe what what you meant by that.
0: Well, when you when you think about it, I I, I use that to contrast against the idea that for many many centuries, millennia, no one ha- no one, extinction didn't come up as an idea. So, some fairly sophisticated scientific concepts did did come up. You know, the Greeks and and the Romans had some pretty In the Chinese, I mean, we know a lot of cultures there. Arabs had had some pretty sophisticated mathematical and scientific knowledge, um, certainly knowledge of the heavens and of the natural world. But they did not, it seems, so far as we can ascertain, have the idea of extinction. Um, And now we routinely, you know, because of dinosaurs, Barney, you know, we introduce our kids to the idea of extinction at at a very, very young age, uh, that there are animals that once really dominated the planet that aren't here anymore so so i i wanted to get that kind of contrast in
1: so extinction today is is pretty much an accepted fact little kids seem to know about it who are playing with dinosaurs the rest of us seem to accept (laughs) that that extinction uh is a fact um but but as you point out in your book and and this i completely didn't realize extinction as an idea which you just touched on is really new, and and it really wasn't truly accepted by the scientific community as recently as like the 1970s and the 1980s, um, but it, it can be traced back to a French naturalist, George Cuvier, who who features prominently in your book. So, can you just talk a little bit about George Cuvier? and and his group uh called the catastrophists and and what they believed.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess one thing I should say is it, it's not really that extinction wasn't accepted till the 70s. It's it's that this idea of catastrophic extinction because that would be a little bit unfair to paleontologists. Yeah. <laughs> but um extinction uh you know, in, in, until, the, until the end of the 19th, 18th century, really, the prevailing idea, and it was very, very dominant, was that if the creator had you know, created a species, why, why would he create it just to do away with it? It didn't, didn't seem to really make sense. And um, so we have, for example, Thomas Jefferson, who was very interested in fossils um, and kept a fossil collection at the White House for a while, Even he really resisted the idea of extinction. He thought when he sent uh, Lewis and Clark out, they were going to find live mastodons roaming around. Um, And he has a very famous quote, which I quote in the book, um, you know, such is the economy of nature that it would not allow any, no single instance can be produced of her having allowed a single one of her creatures to become extinct. Um, And, then Cuvier comes along, and he is looking at this much the same fossils as, as Thomas Jefferson. He has a better fossil collection. He's in Paris, and um, at the Museum of Natural History there, which is already quite an impressive collection at that point. We're in we're in the very end of the 18th century right now, and he looks at these animals, and on on the basis of what we would say, now say is not. You know, it, was, it wasn't sort of a process of careful hypothesizing and deduction and, 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 and research, but it was just a very simple statement. Look, if these animals, mastodons, were key to his insight um, because they're very strange, they were very hard to place, they have these weird teeth, they don't look like elephant teeth, but they have tusks like elephants, so what are they? They were People were really mystified by them for a really long time. Um and he said, "Look, if if they were out there, we we would have seen them." Um, and the same went for mammoths, which are very elephant-like. They're quite look quite like elephants. Their skeletons, but in their bones and their tusks and their teeth, but not exactly. And he just said, "Look, if we, if these animals, they're very large animals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone would have seen them by now." And that was how extinction, as a concept, really uh, came into being. And it. It explained a lot of things that people had had a really hard time explaining before. So it it, it caught on pretty quickly. People, you know, realized he was right.
1: Cuvier's work led him to this idea, and and I want to quote your book here: that that life was long, mutable, and full of fantastic creatures that no longer existed. Now that makes makes it sound like he'd be very amenable to another popular scientific idea that was emerging at the time, which was evolution. Uh, but somewhat surprisingly, uh, the opposite is true. He was actually vehemently opposed to evolution. And and similarly, Charles Darwin um, was, was quite opposed to the idea of these abrupt, um, massive changes uh, causing extinction events, these catastrophes. So... Talk a bit about how Charles Darwin fits into this story.:
0: Well that as, as you say, those are sort of the two tw- there's sort of two interesting strains in what might be called biological thinking in the now we're talking. Um, Cuvier and Darwin are really separated by a generation or even two generations, you might say. Um, and they never met, although T- Darwin's mentor, Charles Lyle, did, did meet Cuvier and was quite friendly with him. Um, and so Cuvier um, decided, Cuvier was an, was an anatomist, really, by, by training. Not that he had much formal training, but by, by vocation and by sort of um, affinity. And he prided himself on being able to tell on the basis of a few bones, what sort of animal he was looking at. Now, nowadays, that doesn't strike us as that remarkable, but at the time, it was quite remarkable. His thinking was that if that an animal was perfectly suited to its way of life, right? And so what could possibly drive it extinct? The way he figured it, the only thing that could drive it extinct was a massive change on the on planet Earth. So he thought that all extinctions had happened in, in these big pulses, um, and even though as he came up with more and more creatures, he sort of had to come up with more and more pulses of extinction, that didn't really bother him. That was what he thought had happened. And that was the prevailing idea until um, Charles Lyell came along in the 1830s and said, no, the earth doesn't change quickly. The earth changes only very slowly. And extinction is also a very slow process. Lyle, I should point out. He's, a, he's sort of considered the father of modern geology in a lot of ways, but he also did not believe in evolution. He was adamantly opposed to evolution. So being opposed to evolution was no, uh, you know, doesn't, didn't prevent you from having a lot of scientific insights. So then Darwin comes along and sort of takes Lyell's view of gradual change in, in geology and um, applies it, but um, applies it to the biological world. There's also very, very gradual change going on in the biological world, that's evolution, natural selection. Um, And that's, you know, On the Origin of Species comes out in 1859. And he is really opposed to the idea that nature changes very quickly. He says, you know, nature doesn't jump, doesn't make jumps. And he also sort of applies that to extinction. Extinction doesn't happen in catastrophic uh, ways it, ha- it happens, it takes that Lyellian idea, it only happens very gradually and now none of these things, when you think about them, are necessarily true, you can have evolution and you can have catastrophic extinction they don't contradict each other but uh, Darwin feels they do and so, and his view prevails for a very, very long time obviously, uh, Cuvier is forgotten, discredited, kind of reviled even <laughs> and then, not till the 80s um, when the Alvarez's father and son come up with the idea that an asteroid impact was what killed off the dinosaurs, uh, does this idea of catastrophic extinction burst back into science and now is very, very, you know, generally accepted that, yes, an asteroid killed off the dinosaurs, yes, there are moments in time when sort of what uh, Darwin and Lyell would have thought of as catastrophes do, do occur.
1: There are now multiple converging lines of evidence that that very strongly point um, to an asteroid killing the dinosaurs. And uh, one remarkable thing about this extinction event was how quickly it happened. Um, it seems that a, a huge amount of the extinction, especially the dinosaurs, happened in like a single day, which was the day the asteroid hit, um, which you've dubbed the worst day ever on planet Earth and it's important to say that even though this wasn't the most severe extinction event ever, it, it might've been the worst single day on earth for, for life. So just briefly take us through the worst day ever on, on planet earth.
0: Well, obviously no one was around. Um, and we have to try to, you know, in some sense, infer what, what went on, on the basis of, you know, modeling and, and, and certain amount of evidence, but it's like, you know, 66 million years ago. So, what what scientists now think happened um, is that, you know, this asteroid, which was very large, probably about the size of, you know, Manhattan, basically, uh, crashed into the planet, right? Um, it's, sort of in, it's now where the Gulf of Mexico is, that it would have been, you know, basically part of it would have been sticking out of the atmosphere as it hit. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> and then it is pulverized on impact. It was, it was traveling very, very fast, tens of thousands of miles per hour. Uh, pulverizes the force is so great that the ejecta, so these you know, tiny pieces of it, fly up, crashed right back through the atmosphere. And as they would have descended, the friction would have been so great that they would have incandesced and basically broiled the surface of the planet. So... The, the prevailing theory now is that you sort of got this broiling effect you got massive fires, probably um, anything that was uh, above ground did did really really badly um and you know was it a day hard to know of course, at a distance of sixty six million years, but very likely many things disappeared that day um, then you would have gotten potentially the sort of equivalent of a nuclear winter. You know, a lot of dust in the atmosphere. Uh, and you might, you might have had a very cold period, so you might have been broiled, then very cold. Plant life clearly was decimated, more than decimated, you know, just devastated. Uh, so that in, even if you were underground and you crawled out and you needed to eat, what was there to eat? So the question of, you know, whether anything survived that wasn't sort of a carry-on feeder um, you know, things did survive. The, the sort of miracles that what did survive on some level. You know, and and people have tried to look at, okay, can we um, come up with a very clear rule as to what survived and what didn't? And it, it's a little bit hard to. Um, you could sort of imagine that these small mammals that were our distant distant ancestors. You know, maybe they were some of them were living underground and sort of crawled out. But but you know, some birds, some birds survived, obviously. You know, so. Um, so it's hard to see exactly what the rules here were, but um, but obviously it was a it was it was not easy to get through that post-apocalyptic period.
1: Interesting that you you bring up rules because it, it seems somewhat hard to to draw rules uh, uh, between the last five as well as the sixth extinction event. Um, what, what was tempting after the Alpha Reses discovered that an asteroid had in fact Wiped out the dinosaurs and killed a lot of life um, at the end of the Cretaceous was to say, okay, now we've figured it out: asteroids cause mass extinctions. Um, but but this was not the case, and we now know that each extinction event was caused by something very different. And and the way you you put it, which I really like, uh, to, to echo Tolstoy, was every extinction event appears to be unhappy and fatally so, each in its own way. So can you can you just contrast? Um, the end Cretaceous extinction, the extinction event we've been discussing with another extinction event, uh, any of the others, and, and how they were different?
0: Well, um, the first of these so-called big five is, is the, it's, it's called the end Ordovician extinction. It happened about 440 million years ago. And at that point, um, life was still largely confined to the water, so we didn't really have terrestrial life yet. So... Uh, that was a terribly bad event for aquatic life, um, and it, it's believed that that was caused. All the evidence seems to point to a cold snap. There was this weird glaciation event, um, and we have quite good evidence of that, and in, in, in sort of glacial striations, for example, in on rocks that are from that period, um, where you where you can still find rocks from that period, and. Uh, and it, the carbon in the atmosphere um, shows a, a cold event. But what exactly caused that cold event, a sudden cold snap, sudden glaciation like that, uh, no one is quite sure. Excuse me. And um, so that, but that is the best people can do for the end Ordovician <laughs> extinction. Um, so there's no, as you say, there's no clear rule, you know, there, the end Permian extinction, which was the worst extinction. Uh, of all time, it seems, um, that seems to have been the opposite. That was a very severe warming episode. A lot of carbon went into the atmosphere. Um, we don't know quite how uh, exactly, although it seems um, it was a, this major sort of burst of volcanism, volcanic activity. Um, and so that was a very warm period. Ocean acidification was very uh, dramatic in that um, moment ocean anoxia no oxygen in the oceans um so that was that seems to be the cause for the end permian though once again cause is hard to say because why did why do we get all that carbon how did we get all that carbon in the atmosphere so um yeah so those are those are some that some potentially to contrast with with an asteroid impact
1: over the course of the book You travel to some pretty spectacular places all around the world, different ecosystems, uh, and you see evidence of past extinction events as well as evidence of the current extinction event. One thing I notice is that at these sites, you you kind of have a tendency to pocket things that you (laughs) like, like pocket fossils. I just wanted to ask you where this impulse comes from (laughs) to keep remnants of past extinctions.
0: Well... I, I was out with it, people generally who were paleontologists and fossil collectors, you know, fossil, that's, that's all they do is, you know, smash up rocks and bring stuff home and try to um, analyze it. So uh, they, were, they were encouraging the, the, the collecting impulse, and I, I have some things that actually would look like absolutely nothing to anyone if, if, you, if you weren't there.
1: Now I'd like to talk a bit about the sixth extinction event, um, the title of your book, and the uh, extinction event that we are currently in. So this geological event is being called informally the Anthropocene. However, this term is increasingly being used in scientific circles. Right now, the Stratigraphy Commission of the Geological Society of London is currently reviewing the merit of, of the word anthropocene and will deliver a decision in a number of years. So, what would warrant this this name being officially recognized, and, and what would we expect? Um, what imprint would we expect humans to leave uh, in the fossil record that would be seen millions of years from now?
0: Well, it's it's an interesting um, it's a it's a really interesting technical question, and you know, whole sort of volumes of, of, of I think. Philosophical Transactions, for example, have been devoted to this question of what, you know, should we for, should it be formally adopted? Not not just you know by by the whole International Commission on Stratigraphy, which is a very you know, conservative body, and I I think doesn't doesn't rename geological epochs very lightly, um, and and but I mean I think I think wh- whether or not it's formally recognized, I, I think the exercise has been really interesting and has. I think proven to most people, most geologists, even that, you know, we, we will be leaving a permanent signal behind, um, you know, it, people, geologists have all sorts of, you know, technical concerns that it's not really necessarily worth going into here, but, but the, you know, I think it's without a doubt that we will leave behind a, a, a very very strong <laughs> signal you know in the fossil record where, with with you know extinctions, and then um, what will evolve from here will be the descendants of what survived and and was transported around the world by us. so when you start to think about all these things, it's quite you know quite fascinating really, for example, um, you know we've carried in things all around the world, and they will leave their fossil record behind so so the guy that I was one of the moving forces behind this whole um, effort to, to formally rename rename the the time period is um, a, a British geologist who has this idea, which is sort of tongue in cheek and sort of not tongue in cheek, of a of a future do- that will be dominated by by giant rats because we have brought rats everywhere. At rats are virtually everywhere, even on very remote archipelagos, like for example. Hawaiian Islands had no rats; had no, you know, no rodents at all, and um, and they thrived. And his point is um, that we know that animals, uh, one thing that evolution does is that animals change size pretty quickly. So, so you could have, uh, you know, a future a future dominated by giant rats. We we can sort of imagine them surviving even a very very severe extinction event.
1: I'd like to, to talk a little bit about some of the places you went, uh, but the one I'd like to talk about a bit in more detail is your experience at the Great Barrier Reef um, and specifically at this really fascinating island called called One Tree Island. So so tell us just a, a little bit about what you were learning about there.
0: Well, I was there. One Tree is a, an island, you know, it's it's, it's it's actually in the reef. All of the islands in the reef, are, m- most of them are, are just bits of reef that have, for whatever reason, sort of piled up and sort of peak above the waves. They're very, very, um, you know, have very low elevation, maybe we're a couple of feet below, above sea level. Um, this particular island is, is absolutely tiny, you know, just, just a few acres, really. Um, and there's a little tiny research station on it. And what uh, the scientists that I was there with were doing was uh, they were actually trying to look at uh, the rate of calcification on the reef, so how, you know, reefs have to assemble. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's hard to explain a little bit, but but the reef creatures, these tiny little coral polyps, they're called. Each one is spending its time, you know, doing a lot of different things. But one of the things it's doing is sort of adding to this reef structure, adding calcium carbonate to this. What will be this, you know, what is this huge reef, or but starts out as you know just a little thing. Um, and and the rate at which they're doing that, the rate at which they're adding calcium carbonate, there are many forces that are subtracting calcium carbonate, things that eat away at the reef, just regular erosion, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's a moment people postulate at which point, you know, the rate of calcification and the rate of erosion are going to cross um, because calcification is slowing uh, as a result of um, ocean acidification, <laughs> Uh, making it harder, we're making it harder and harder for reefs to, to grow. Uh, and we will eventually, if we keep pouring carbon dioxide into the water, which we seem to be doing at a very rapid rate, these two rates are going to cross and, and reefs are not going to be able to keep up and they will start to to decline, you know, shrink. Uh, and eventually we will get no reefs. And reefs are uh, in very bad trouble. Reefs, um, I quote some British um, marine scientists who say reefs are likely to be the first major ecosystem to become functionally extinct. And uh, it's very hard to find someone, a marine scientist, who does not feel that reefs uh, by the middle of this century or so are going to be in terrible, terrible trouble. They're already in terrible trouble.
1: On a somewhat lighter note,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I just have to get you to explain one uh, really amazing thing that you, you got to witness, which I thought was so cool. Because it felt like it was lifted straight out of science fiction, which is this this event that occurs once a year uh, where, where corals uh, undergo this synchronous group sex after the full moon. Yeah. so can you just tell us like a little bit about what you got what you got to see
0: sure that, that's, that's a coral spawning and cross spawn um... Once a year, and they're, they're really interesting. Most of them are hermaphro- hermaphrodites, so they release these little tiny bundles. Um, they look like sort of glass beads that have both eggs and sperm, and then they hit the surface of the water, and they, and they burst open. And the night of the spawning, it really is one night. Uh, it can be pretty well predicted based on temperature and full moon. Uh, so this one was in December, Um, And that's their summer in Australia, obviously. And we went out. I went out with a bunch of grad students um, on a night snorkel that night of the spawning. And what happens is um, the corals just release these bundles, these little beads. So it looks like these little beads that are floating up. Um, and it looks as if someone's, you know, sort of shaken a huge snow globe, but everything, instead of falling down, is falling up, um, and it's quite magical. It's quite beautiful. Um, of course, it's silent underwater. Um, you had to go out with lights, um, but in the beam of your flashlight, you could see just these, you know, millions of, of, of little beads uh, dr- drifting up to the surface, so it's quite magical. <laughs>
1: Now, how, how is that process being affected by environmental change?
0: Well, um, I, there were people there to study precisely that, and what they were doing was taking um, corals, who are really pretty adaptable as lab animals. You just break off a piece of a reef, you stick it on a tile with some glue, literally, and the coral will happily, if you, if it has enough to eat, you know, it will just sit there. And, and and grow, and so they took these corals that were about to spawn, they put them in tanks, and then they collected um, the these bundles as as they released them. They then subjected them to various levels of acidification, so bubbled CO two through the water, and uh, tried to and, and and it was a massive project looking at how. How different levels of acidification affected them at each layer, level uh, stage of development. So, course, so the, the bundles get released. Uh, if you get then you get fertilization. If you get fertilization, then you get a larva. Then the larva has to drop out of the water column and has to attach itself uh, to something hard, some other calcium, some calcium carbonate, and then it itself starts producing calcium carbonate. So it's a, it's a complicated process. Um, and they were finding sort of negative results at every stage of this process. And if you don't get new, new corals to, you know, drop out of the water column, start forming their own colonies of corals, uh, then clearly, you know, you're going to have a decline on, on reefs. You're going to not replace things that are dying.
1: I want to ask you about a quote um, in the book during your, your trip to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and it was was one night uh, where you were were out at night with a researcher um, named Kenny Schneider, uh, and you were out visiting a patch of corals to do some sampling, I believe, and and you wrote this. The reason I'd come to the Great Barrier Reef was to write about the scale of human influence, and yet Schneider and I seemed very, very small in the unbroken dark. So can you talk a little bit about this feeling?
0: Well, we were... We were um, out getting water samples about a mile away from this research station, and to get to the spot where they they had just had a little buoy out there where you had to collect the water samples so that you collected at the same place every time, and you would walk out across the reef. There's something called a reef flat, which is the part of a reef that has grown to the level of the water uh, at low tide, and... And if you walk and when the tide goes, goes down, you can sort of almost walk across the reef. Like you could walk across, you know, a series of tables basically. And so we were doing that. It was late at night, 12, one and 12, o'clock at night, pitch black, incredible stars. Um, and you, you don't see any human habitation, obviously, even though you know we weren't that actually that far from the research station. You can't see it. There's no light. There's, you know, not much power at the research station anyway. Uh, and you just don't see anything. You don't, you know, you don't see the horizon. You know, you only see sort of where the stars end and, and this black water begins. Um, and it's it's definitely the sort of most remote place I've <laughs> ever been. Uh, com- you know, you're n- completely out of communication with the rest of, of, of the world. Um, so it felt very, very distant from everything. And here we were specifically because, we're, you know, they were interested in... in in looking at human impacts on the planet, so it had that wonderfully sort of paradoxical quality, and that was true of many of the places that I went, you know, in the rainforest, in the cloud forest, everywhere. I was out with people who were looking at how people are changing uh, the world, but here we were sort of, you know, as far from, you know, what we would consider sort of modern society as, as, as you can be these days, basically.
1: I want to talk about another paradoxical relationship that humans seem to have with the natural world. And that's um, our, our somewhat paradoxical relationship to to the species that we're, we're killing off and just to, to large animal species in general. Um, on the one hand, it seems like it's in our very nature to kill species off. Um, yet on the other hand, we go to like these ridiculous lengths uh, in terms of our use of time and money to save species um, so so first off I, I want to address that paradox just by talking about some of the pretty astonishing megafauna um that was present on the world uh, in the world till till pretty recently um so can you can you maybe start by just mentioning a, a few of these really amazing megafauna and then tell us about um, what the current theory is now of what happened to these megafauna.
0: Sure. Yeah, there were there were a lot of you know incredible creatures on Australia. There were um, these creatures that are that were giant marsupials. You know, very large. They're, they're colloquially referred to as rhinocerate rhinoceros wombats, um, and they are no longer with us. There were um, very, very large birds on Australia. There were these tortoises, a whole sort of group of tortoises, huge tortoises the size of sort of VW beetles that had horns that stuck out of their front of their skulls. Um, so those are some interesting megafauna. In North America, we had uh, giant sloths, uh, saber-toothed cats, as people know, you know mammoths, mastodons, and... Um, so giant beaver, you know, there were a lot of really, really large animals. Uh, South America had um, other taxa of, of giant sloths. Um, they had these those wonderful animals. I'm sure everyone's seen them in like a natural history museum, glyptodons, which were uh, also huge. They had those sort of armored plates. They sort of look like huge oversized armadillos a little bit. Um, so those are just, you know, some of the megafauna that were that were around, maybe, let's say, if you'd lived on Earth 50,000 years ago. And then, uh, when and you know, there's been a long-standing debate, well, where did all these big animals go? And this has gone back a long time because everyone realized, well, these are, you know, we're going all the way back to Cuvier and and Lyle. They realized that there had been these big animals, their bones were found quite near the surface of the Earth. They must have been here pretty recently, and what had happened to them? And one original, one early theory was climate change, and another early theory was people had killed them off. And that debate still goes on, but I think the uh, the evidence has really pointed toward, and I think most scientists at this point would agree, uh, toward people. And the reason for that is very simple, because if you look at when these animals went extinct on the different continents, uh, you can't It doesn't line up with any particularly dramatic moment of climate change. Uh, They they went extinct first, for example, on Australia in the middle of an an ice age, really, about 40,000 years ago. But the one thing it does line up with very elegantly uh, is when people arrived on the continent. So interestingly, people arrived uh, very early on Australia, about 50,000 years ago, much earlier than they arrived uh, in North America, which is sort of astonishing.
1: So the fact that we know or are fairly certain that humans have been uh, driving species extinct kind of since as long as we've been around yeah. and spreading around the world, um, does, that, does that cast um, us in a different light of, of how we view ourselves uh, driving species to extinction today? You know, a lot of people think of the main culprit being kind of the post-industrial uh, humans, um for for you know our, our separation from nature and and um
0: yeah.
1: so so d- does this does this cast us in a different light
0: I, I think it does I mean, I think it suggests that there's something pretty um as as you say we've we've been at this project for a long time um both probably through hunt, hunt predation, you know we are very very interesting predators we use tools that's really unique <laughs> among um, among animals that you can, you know, kill something at a distance. You don't have to evolve, you know, a new kind of tooth or you don't have to be run faster. You you can, you can develop a tool, and that allows us to kill things that are much larger than we are that really cannot happen, you know, that doesn't ha- normally happen. Um, so we're a very dangerous predator, and that was probably, you know, why we were so effective at wiping out the megafauna because they... Uh, rely on this strategy, this evolutionary strategy of being very big, having escaped predation, uh, and then reproducing very slowly. But if you introduce a predator and and you're still reproducing very slowly, uh, you can see how that would really put a squeeze on those species and eventually drive them all the way down, you know, to to nothing. Um, But we also started introducing introduced species, invasive species, very early. So uh, you know, in places like Hawaii, this is, was especially devastating when people reached islands uh, and they brought, say, rats. Um, they Those, whatever, you know, humans hadn't done in by hunting, you know, a, a lot of animals, for example, in New Zealand, let's say, uh, that ground nesting birds were just, you know, absolutely devastated. Many are extinct. Many are on the, the absolute verge of extinction right now um, through the introduced species that we brought along. Not, not, Europeans already, but already the Polynesians, the Maori people who, who came in boats um, pretty early on to various islands. So while we, while we often do blame sort of industrialization, modern transport, uh, this process has been going on much, much longer than that. Um, and it does force us to sort of rethink our place in the whole you know, order of things. Now, that being said, we are obviously greatly, greatly accelerating that by, um, you know, moving things around the world on cargo ships, by mowing, you know, down the rainforest, by using fossil fuels. So, you know, a process that began that was was very, in many places, extremely deadly, extremely long time ago, uh, has now reached, you know, new proportions, and we keep laying over old threats, you know, new ones. So, climate change and ocean acidification um, are global in scope. So while other things were maybe local, you know, pretty local, uh, now we've introduced a whole layer of of global threat.
1: So humans are pretty talented um, at being a a geologic force that drives species to extinction. However, there's this other side to our character um, where we we go to these uh, extreme lengths, to save, uh, species. So can you, can you just discuss one, um, example of that?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I visited, um, you know, a rhino, uh, who's in a zoo now, a Sumatran rhino. There's, there's a, about a hundred of these animals left in the whole world. Um, they're really incredible animals. Um, uh, and they, the, Scientists at at the zoo at the Cincinnati Zoo were are, I, I watched a rhino get an ultrasound. For example, she gets regular ultrasounds, and they desperately want to get her pregnant. Um, when I was there, they were trying to artificially inseminate her. Uh, that did not work, and now um, actually, there's a sort of sequel to this story, already, which is that they she has a brother, who was actually born in captivity and was at the L.A. Zoo for several years and is now reaching sexual maturity. And they brought her brother uh, to the Cincinnati Zoo in a desperate effort uh, to mate brother and sister, something, you know, no <laughs> geneticist wants to do, no you know, no zoo wants to do. Um, but that's how bad the situation is that they're going to try to mate them. That hasn't worked yet either, I should say. Um, but they're, they're you know, going to tremendous lengths to try to save this species um, you know, some people would say, once you're down to the last hundred individuals, you know, the species is basically doomed. It's too late. Um, but people don't give up. <laughs> and they, um, you know, so that, uh, th- you know, there's a lot of people working with a lot of dedication, a lot of a lot of love, and a lot of, um, you know, the triumph of sort of hope over experience um, trying to save these animals once they've dwindled to this, you know, just painfully low level, and the obvious point to make here is, you know, that we shouldn't be letting these animals reach these ridiculously low numbers because it's really, it's really too late at that point to, to preserve a viable population for the for the future. You can maybe preserve a, sort of a zoo population, um, and then you also have to ask yourself, okay, why did why is that animal going extinct, and what are you going to do with it? Even if you do, if you do save it in a in a remnant population.
1: Now the rhino that you spent some time with yourself was named?
0: Uh, her name is Suchi.
1: Suchi. And and you mentioned in your book that uh, E.O. Wilson spent the night with her, which he called one of the most memorable nights of his life. Yeah. W- why, why do you think he said that?
0: Well, it was actually Suchi's mother that Ed Wilson was with. Um, she, she had died before I got there. Um, I think because it's a very large... She's a very large animal. You know, we're talking about an animal that that's weighs almost, two, you know, 15, she weighs about 1,500 pounds. But, um, and in, in the wild, I, I know people who have studied, I spoke to people who have studied Sumatran Rhiners, and if you, if you tried to find them in the rainforest, you'd never encounter one because they're very shy, uh, and they can hear you or smell you or whatever, and they will, get, they will run away. But they're actually incredibly sweet and gentle Animals, and so I, I spent a lot of time with Suji in her stall. She could have easily killed me, um, and she just sort of, you know, uh, sat there like or, or stood there like a like a. I, I just I described it as being with an overgrown dog. She's very affectionate, so it's a very interesting experience to have this, um, you know, fifteen hundred very dangerous-looking animal. Uh, who's actually very, very sweet and seems to just want to be friends, you know. So I think maybe that's why it's so memorable. They're also very ancient animals. Um, this genus that Sumatran rhinos come from, which is related to the woolly rhino, which is now extinct, um, is, is a very ancient animal. So you have this sense of, of being with, with... a. They do look sort of ancient, and, and so you have the sense of, of, of another world that you're having contact sort of with a, with a former world.
1: I want to talk about another idea that that's very connected to that one that you don't touch on specifically in your book, but you wrote about um, recently for the New Yorker. Um, and that's the idea of bringing extinct species back, uh, which is uh, called by some people resurrection ecology. Um, and this has been popularized by individuals like Stuart Brand um, in terms of bringing back uh, extinct species like the the mammoth and uh, the American passenger pigeon. So, can you tell us a little bit about this idea and then your your opinion on it
0: well I think it it is related it's it, you could you could argue it's another um response to this terrible sense of loss that we have you know when something does go ex- extinct especially sort of an iconic species like you know like like the rhino or like a the passenger pigeon, not that any of us saw passenger pigeons alive. Um, but there's certainly a great deal of literature and art that, that, you know, describes them for us. Uh, and we have lots of stuffed ones. If you want to see one, you can, um, and wonderful, you know, pictures by Audubon. Um, so i think it's it 's a response to that you know let's let's try to let 's try to bring something back that we that we 've lost we're we 're very humans don 't like loss even though we 're very good at causing loss uh, we're, not, we're, not too, we're we don't like the consequences of loss um, and so i don't i don 't necessarily think i don't think the impulse is bad i understand the impulse um, but i i i find it um You know, I think in that piece that I wrote, I I sort of described it as a vanity project because I think it's trying to assuage our own sense of loss. It has, you know, almost nothing to do with the natural world. Even if you could, say, bring back something that's like a passenger pigeon, and, you know, we can talk about how much like a passenger pigeon it could ever be, um, you know, you're not bringing back the way of a passenger pigeon. You're not bringing back the ecological Function that passenger p- billions of passenger pigeons fulfilled. So you know what? What are you doing? You know we we I I, I, I talk about the last passenger pigeon, who was a bird named Martha, who lived actually coincidentally, like Sushi, at the Cincinnati Zoo, and you know that she led this sort of very tragic life, all alone there. And then you would sort of be bringing back a passenger pigeon to lead this tragic life again. You know, and it doesn't seem. Um, it seems like it's about us. It's not about the birds, and it's not about it's not about the forest, which they were part of. Um, so I'm not sure what the point of it would be.
1: I like that idea uh, that we're good at causing loss, but not good at dealing with loss. There's a tone uh, in, in parts of this book which is echoed in some of the scientists um, scientists that you, that you travel with. Uh, both in in this book, as well as your last book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, which was about climate change, which is acknowledging the seriousness of the current time that we're in, but also like a level of fascination of being able to witness this incredible time of change, this really dynamic time on the earth. Can you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, there's that, there's the, there's the Chinese, um, curse may you live in interesting times i think it's chinese it's always attributed to the chinese maybe it is <laughs> maybe the chinese don't know what we're talking about anyway um may you live in interesting times and it's you know uh, and we live in interesting times and that uh, brings with it um you know a lot of a lot of scary possibilities, um, but also a lot of, you know, for research purposes, you know, fascinating possibilities. And many, many scientists have told me that they are witnessing changes um, at a speed that they were taught as graduate students to believe was impossible. This, these things didn't happen, you know, uh, that fast. And, and, they, and they are seeing them. And so I think it is um, a really interesting time in certain fields with all the implications of that, of both, you know, horror and and fascination.
1: Your book is uh, quite purposefully not prescriptive. Um, And and I've heard you say in recent interviews that, that if anything, the importance of the book is sort of this idea of of bearing witness. So humans are very likely not going to be able to, to change these actions that are, are really largely somewhat benign that we do on a day-to-day basis that are that are causing these changes and likely this sixth sixth extinction event is an eventuality but there is some importance to just to not just letting the change happen but 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 observing the change and acknowledging the change and and even studying the change why is this important if it's going to happen anyway
0: well i I think that we do have to take responsibility. I mean, a lot of ter- terrible things, presumably, are going to happen, um, but we wouldn't say, well, we we should just pretend they're not happening. Um, so it, it's sort of this interesting reaction that people have. It seems to me an interesting reaction to environmental problems, which you don't have. Like, like for example, I'm not going to stop the war in Syria, but I don't think people would say, well, therefore, we shouldn't have you know coverage of the war in, in Syria, Um So I do think it's important just to, you know, acknowledge that's part of of, of what it means to be this sentient creature. Um, But I also think that it's important that we do face up to what we're doing. I think it's important on on ethical grounds, um, apart from, uh, you know, what we're going to, to do or not do about it. And clearly it is important in terms of trying to ameliorate the situation. I mean, we... I think it's clear that we could precipitate, you know, a truly potentially end Permian scale extinction. I have had very serious scientists tell me, uh, I quoted one in The New Yorker, say, we cannot rule out an end Permian-like uh, outcome here. We, we have the power to do that. You know, we just burned through all the fossil fuels on the planet. Uh, we, we could potentially do that. Um, but we do still have a lot of choices to make. Um, and we need—we do need to bring that to consciousness. I don't foresee us, you know, all skipping through the forest with, you know, butterflies and ending our impacts on the planet. That—that's not happening. But we still there are still choices between, you know, what kind of level uh, of extinction event we want to cause. Um, and certainly, you know, we have to acknowledge that we are causing one uh, before we can consider you know what we what we could potentially do to to ameliorate that so i think that there are practical and ethical and as i say just ethical reasons even apart from that that we need to to acknowledge what what's going on well
1: elizabeth colbert thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me i really enjoyed the book and it was really nice to talk to you
0: oh thanks thanks for coming here (laughs)
1: That was Elizabeth Colbert speaking about her new book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of New Books on the Environment, a channel of the New Books Network. The podcast is hosted and produced by Ben Goldfarb, Jason Schwartz, and me, Noah Sokol. See you next month.